Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, welcome to our episode of Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. Today's episode is a bit different in that we're not going to talk about a specific women's health condition, but we are going to talk about women's issues that can impact on our health, both physically and emotionally. Dr. Kelly Lee Stecker is an OBGYN and the author of Delivering, a book about her journey through childhood, medical school, residency, private practice, marriage, and motherhood. I was struck by the honesty by which she told her story, as well as the themes she touches on that many women will recognize and identify with. I asked her to join us in the hopes that you will find her perspective hopeful as well as helpful. I am sure you will be inspired. I met Dr. Stecker through LinkedIn when she posted about her concern for the numbers of unsung heroes at the front lines of healthcare, some giving their lives to help those with COVID, some taking their lives because the stress and despair were too great to cope. She created an organization, Patient Care Heroes, to provide resources and support for the families of those fallen heroes and to pay tribute to their loved ones. She's also a governor of the 7th District of the American Medical Women's Association, among many other activities. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Kelly Lee Stecker. She is co-founder of Patient Care Heroes. She is the chief medical officer of Linked Inclusion. She's also a practicing OBGYN and most recently author of the book, Delivering. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. And I should say Dr. Stecker, but we know each other, so yes, please, yes. I hope, hope that's okay. You're wearing lots of hats and you're doing a lot of things. And I think that that uh, is kind of part of what everybody is doing right now, if this is any kind of indication. But you do have a lot on your plate. I mean, everything that you do is, is not minor. So why did you, I'm just going to ask this from the very beginning, why did you feel you wanted to write a book? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think my sister is wondering that as well. Um, <laughs> um, she actually asked me, like, can you just like go to work and then like come home and maybe like just hang out at home for a while and not do 20 other things? And I was like, well, yeah, uh, but you know, as well as I do, especially when COVID happened, there was this void and there's a lot of issues around us losing our humanity, us losing our connection to people. And when we became distant to each other, when we stopped communicating as effectively, I think that's when we really became, you know, heroes and villains and all of this kind of divisive stuff that has happened in our culture. And also the other issue that I saw, and one of the reasons I 
talk to you initially about starting patient care heroes is really making sure that we were telling people stories in an authentic way so that we could humanize the healthcare workers that are going through this pandemic because the disinformation, misinformation propaganda pathway was so strong that people were feeling really emotionally scarred from their interactions with patients. And also in some states, as recently as the last couple of months, people were given panic buttons because they had been assaulted by Mm. patients. So we needed to really humanize healthcare workers. And at the same time, I was working in the space of advocacy for gender equity and racial equity in medicine, which unfortunately is really a hallmark at the root of many of the issues we have, especially with burnout and mental health and health care. And you know how many women are leaving medicine, unfortunately. And so I wanted to be able to tell my story in as authentic of a way to open up some of these conversations for people to have. Well, you have been um, in the book. You are so open and so honest and cover a lot of ground. So you mentioned patient care heroes. You mentioned um, sex discrimination in the workplace. And we'll get all to all those in a little bit more depth. But going to your point about um, the polarization that is happening and the lack of uh, uh, people trusting and, and talking, I just want to quote, and I'm going to probably quote you through this entire um, uh, session because I loved what you said. And you said, love is the only entity strong enough to pull us from hell or purgatory and land us in paradise. If we could be more virtuous in our love for each other, we would be able to climb this mountain and make it through the hell we created on earth. That's a pretty strong statement. And I know that you mentioned that you and I met literally on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Um, Shout out to LinkedIn, I guess, (laughs) um, because you talked about the um, impact of what was going on. Um, and we were losing, literally losing our healthcare heroes, um, to the epidemic and the pandemic, um, in some ways because people weren't doing their part, um, but expecting, um, our healthcare workers to do theirs. And I certainly resonated with that. I was feeling, even though I'm not on the front lines like you are, I was so, um, upset about that as well. And you stepped up and wanted to tell those people's stories um, and, and honor them and their families. So talk a little bit about Patient Care Heroes and how you incorporated your love um, to help us walk through the earth. Yeah, you know, I think all of us have been given different skills and gifts and everything else in our life. And one of the things that I uh, have tried to hone is telling people's stories and really being just kind of a listening ear for them. And so I was able to, through different organizations and through LinkedIn and Minnesota Mental Health Advocates and everything else, I came in contact with like LifeWeb360, which is actually a very cool company that does bereavement social media, essentially. And so mm-hmm. you can share this among your loved ones and you can create basically like a memory box of stories and videos and everything else. And so we teamed up with them to create our own separate platform for our healthcare heroes and really making sure that we're not losing sight of the sacrifice that people made. And along this journey, I've of course met with many people who've lost loved ones through suicide because of the hardships that they've experienced during the pandemic. And I've been really fortunate to meet with some national leaders in this area as well. And Corey Feist, who helped start the Breen Foundation 
from Dr. Lorna Breen out east who died by suicide. And really hearing their struggles gave me strength to keep working on these issues, like the physician licensing issues that we have and the stigma around mental health in the U.S., whether you're a physician or a nurse or a teacher, whoever you may be, we still have this really deeply stigmatized culture when it comes to mental health. And really that became the nidus of of change within me as well. Sure. Well, I want to know about that, but let me just go back to what you said, the physician licensing issue. Tell, Tell us a little bit more about that. So in Minnesota, we've been working to get the physician license applications changed because initially they were essentially against the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they could discriminate against people who sought mental health care. Because every time when we do an application such as that in every state, it asks you if you've been treated for anything like mental illness or drug use or something like that. Yes. And so each state has a different standard has a different application process. So each state is its own little fiefdom run by its own medical board, as you know. And Minnesota, we were just able to successfully get the language changed to look at, you know, currently, are you having XYZ issues? And unfortunately, there's still about 13 states that have this kind of sideline discussion. However, the other issue is physicians don't know about these changes either. So when you talk to physicians, they assume that even if you're not diagnosed with depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, and if you you seek care, that's going to look poorly on you and you might be on probation. So not only is it stigmatized, not only do some states discriminate against care, Mm -hmm. but physicians have this underlying anxiety just to seek care might reflect poorly on them and may become a detriment to their ability to practice medicine. Whether or not that's true, obviously that's different case by case and state by state. However, that's a real issue that people struggle with. And it's such a vicious cycle, right? I mean, going back to some of the work, uh, some of your um, uh, stories that you tell in your book, just, you know, and we've both experienced this medical training is punitive, right? You're not sleeping, there's a whole hierarchy, and you also note that if you're a woman, there's some obviously um, other issues that that go into that. And then there's really a lack of support. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Jesse Gold, who is a psychiatrist. I think you probably know her, who mm-hmm. talks a lot about burnout and physician um, and healthcare workers' um, mental health. And it's still a problem. It continues to be a problem. And, you know, it's always, to me, a catch-22 and that if we are not taking care of ourselves and our colleagues, how can we take care of others? Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the research, it shows we have poor quality of care when we're having burnout issues alone. So if you look at just burnout, we're more prone to have adverse patient outcomes. Then you couple that with maybe you're depressed and you're anxious and maybe you have PTSD because you just saw 30 patients die in the ICU, right? And so all of this is going to significantly impact your ability to be efficient on top of your game and provide the best quality care that you can. And so it's in our best interest, it's in the public's best interest for us to be able to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of the community. Now, I know that you have done some work and even and tried to do some work and you talk about cultural change, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So again, it's no shock that we struggle with discrimination, gender equity issues, and racial equity issues in medicine. I think that over the last couple of years, those issues have really come to the forefront. 
And when I look back to when I started my advocacy journey, um, I really wanted to make sure that women had a safe reporting structure. And that is universal across the country. There should be a way for people to report, hey, this happened and then have objective committees or people to evaluate these things. Because obviously, I'm not going to be the person who you know, the argument is, okay, are women making this up, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be able to have objective individuals who can look at the data to protect people. And when I started working in this area to try to push this forward, I got a lot of resistance. And unfortunately, many systems don't have any way of safely reporting such events. And when you talk to people across the country, this is not like this is just a Minnesota thing or a Chicago, Illinois thing or a St. Louis, Missouri thing or any, it's, it's everywhere, right? And so academic centers, private practices, you name it, we struggle with this stuff. And so we really need to have something universal. But when you step it back, residents and medical students really are impacted even greater with these issues because they're beholden to an institution in order to graduate, to become board certified and to be able to be a functioning physician. And honestly, when I look at myself as a med student, I was going to figure out whatever way I needed to figure out to graduate when I started signing those loans. Like there's no turning back. Like you are committed, like it's happening. And so you can put women in medicine in a very precarious situation when they feel like their whole career could be threatened because of an adverse encounter with an attending who could essentially ruin their career. And so I started working with individuals around the country, got asked to be on a task force, the ACGME call to action task force. And so and, we're going to and tell us what the ACGME on. is. Yep. So that's, that's the, the governing body essentially for residency for graduate medical education. And with that, they, in theory, should have enough pull to put pressure on different organizations in order to make sure that we are enforcing minimum standards so that people can feel safe in their practices. And so we are calling them to basically have oversight of this. However, unfortunately, when I think back to about two years ago, when I started approaching like the AMC and the ACGME things, uh, organizations with this, they felt like they couldn't do anything to help us. Um, and my question at that time was, why can't we decredential basically academic centers that are not providing at least a minimum safety standard for students and residents? And at that point, I didn't get a response back, right? Um, which doesn't shock me um, because there isn't a good response to that. Because if you are holding someone accountable, you should be willing to decredential a school if they're not going to protect their students. I look back on my medical school experience and the overt discrimination. I felt the same way. I wasn't going to jeopardize myself. And again, you're low person on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was a lot of subtle discrimination that now I look back and I think, wow, I, how did I miss that? So talk a little bit about some of those microaggressions, if you will. And again, it's not just about gender discrimination. It's also minorities and LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, anybody that perhaps is underrepresented. Yeah, exactly. And there's an organization that was recently started called Speak Up Ortho. And they are literally telling people stories online. They They have an Instagram handle, Speak Up Ortho. And they're working with us with the task force as well. And they're phenomenal. And they're really looking into this. And so they, the individuals who created that actually helped 
author several articles that have come out on microaggressions. And so they look at race and gender and the microaggressions and how that's impacting our physicians. And as you can imagine, women tend to leave when they have the significant drain on them. They're going to be burned out. They're going to have mental health issues. and Or they're not going to go into those specialties that are especially egregious. Exactly. Yes. And obviously ortho, uh, where Speak Up Ortho was started, is one of the specialties that's more significant. But in a not surprising to me thing, like OBGYN is also um, fairly high up in there with gender and racial microaggressions, which is interesting because you would think that we would be the most sensitive to women's health and nurturing some sort of caring, empathetic environment for people who might want to have children or breastfeed. And in the work that I do with the American Medical Women's Association, it's clear that we have not made any progress uh, in these areas. And so it's hard for me to hear the stories of my colleagues who are in school and in residency right now struggling with the same things that I did and my, you know, mentors and different individuals have gone through because it really feels like we have not accomplished a change in the narrative. And when you still have med students who are bashed for breastfeeding, for example, uh, you really wonder, okay, well, you were on your OBGYN rotation. How in the world are you being harassed for breastfeeding? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, do we not... It just, it's, it does not make any sense. It does not make any sense. Um, and when I think about when I started out in private practice, I had about a six month old. I was coming off of residency. I had my son, my chief year and my boss, who was a woman, OBGYN, uh, called my uh, maternity leave when I had my second child on vacation, kept pointing out, you know, that I should be well rested because my vacation and actively discouraged me from breastfeeding at all because Mm. I would be taking away money from the clinic. I was an employed physician. I made well more than I brought in well more than I got paid because employees, you don't make like, you know, like exceptional amount of money. And she, as the owner did not want me to breastfeed. And that was something I dealt with Mm. as a young woman in private practice, um, which I never in my wildest dreams would have thought would have been a thing that I would have dealt with as an OBGYN working in women's health. Right. Well, if it gives you any solace and, you know, again, we're different generations. When I was going through training to even think about doing that was a, was a stretch, right? So we maybe made a little bit of progress, but obviously we have a long, long way to go. So sounds like you have really taken the bull by the horns in some ways. And I think probably by your example, have really initiated and inspired a lot of women. Have you had a chance to experience that? I'm very fortunate that people reach out to me all the time. And I uh, have given a couple talks and I gave a talk at the Ending Physician Burnout Summit that happened in August. Mm-hmm. And I created a panel of different amazing women that told their stories as well. And so that was very lovely because then people kind of knew who the safeguards were, right? And so then we got a lot of people reaching out and telling their stories. And even since the book came out, it's been interesting because I didn't write this intentionally to, you know, have someone go to their employer or HR or whatever. However, uh, I've had several people even in Minnesota reach out to me and say, you know what, I have now gone out and spoken out and I've gone to my HR and, you know, this is an individual who has this, this horrible track record of XYZ. And so it is pretty amazing seeing people benefit from something that you put together. 
I think that there's some common threads in work environments for women, especially now in terms of thinking about going back and where the support's going to be, where the guardrail is going to be. And have you found ways to support others? I mean, I know obviously the, the biggest example is patient care heroes, but as examples for others that might be listening, how one could perhaps put together some circles in order to look out for our sisters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think biggest thing is if you're a woman in medicine, American Medical Women's Association has great collaborations. You can certainly join them. There's a lot of different grief groups because truly COVID has been a trauma experience for a lot of clinicians. And so some people just need like a support group and that is okay. Uh, and and if people were struggling with that, they can certainly reach out and we can get them connected into something. I am really involved with Minnesota Mental Health Advocates, and that's another organization that you can reach out to wherever you're at in the country. And we can help get you teamed up with another organization because the other issue we have is when the emergency declarations are down, we can't just practice anywhere, right? So like a, a a psychologist in Minnesota cannot just then take care of an individual in Texas, even though it might be telehealth. And so that's another thing that we really need to work on. And there's people around the country working on trying to get that change because we do have that shortage of mental health care providers. And so reaching out to legislators to try to work on this issue is also something people can do. Absolutely. I was going to say not only physicians and psychologists, but people who are using the services Mm -hmm. because they will be affected uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, anyone really, because that's the huge issue is we have less access than we need. And so we can't preach to someone, well, go get, you know, counseling, go take care of yourself, go make sure you're doing X, Y, Z if they can't get into someone for three months. And so that aside, the biggest thing that I want people to do is make sure to check up on their people, right? I, I think we don't have the real honest conversations that we need to have. And I will tell you in all of the work that I've done, I typically have a lot more deep dive into mental health in my typical OBGYN world than most because I just see the destruction that some of this stuff has caused people. And so really making sure that you're asking, not just kind of flippantly asking, hey, you know, have you ever had any suicidal ideation, right? Because I think a lot of people are uncomfortable having these conversations, but you really need to sit with it, right? You really need to own this topic with your patients so that they feel like they can come to you and say, you know what, I, I have been struggling. You know, I think the last two days I've really been in this dark place because they need to feel safe in order to disclose that to you. No, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, one of the other issues that unfortunately we've seen a growth in is substance use as well as domestic violence and, um, you know, and not being perfunctory about the way that we're asking about it. Well, and the, the issue with especially domestic violence that I've seen is, again, we tend to have a bias, right? Just like all of us are raised in our own little world. We tend to see only certain people. And, and, and really stereotypically, if I were to ask a patient, well, who do you think is the most likely to have domestic violence. Well, most people think it's going to be someone who is in poverty, right? And domestic violence affects all of us. You could be the richest person in the world and be with an abusive partner. And so really we have to dig into this with every single patient because every single patient could be a victim of domestic violence. And if we use this antiquated 
stereotypes to create what we do as physicians and we're really missing the boat on this. Right. And I would even, you know, expand it to say, you know, as we're all looking out for one another um, to be knowledgeable or, or at least uh, sensitive to that fact. Absolutely. I want to go back to a couple of things that you said in your book and I want to, it's related to what we've just been talking about. First of all, what does keep the receipts mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think um, any woman who's had a bad relationship can probably tell you <laughs> what that means. Um, you know, I mean, you see, you see on social media, like people like printing out like text messages and stuff and like being like, okay, dude, I totally caught you. You're busted. But um, in the, in this instance, it's really, if you are in an uncomfortable situation, relationship, something's going on in your work environment that is not good. Maybe you're being discriminated against. Maybe you're being retaliated against. I want you to keep the emails. I want you to keep the text messages. I want you to have witnesses. I want you to document what's going on. And something that I found to be helpful is, you know, most of us have a phone that's a smartphone, whatever the type may be. Just keep little notes, okay? On September 1st at 2.40 p.m., Sally and Mary were, you know, standing here and witnessed XYZ happen. Like you just need to protect yourself, unfortunately. Even if you think, oh my gosh, this is like, this is whatever. If this is a pattern of behavior that someone has, unfortunately, individuals that are more nefarious can come back and use different things against you. And if you speak up, sometimes accuse you of exaggerating or making it up or whatever the case may be. And so we want you to be able to protect yourself so that you can create a case because unfortunately, women are often not believed. As sad as that is, that just really is the case. And so we need to make sure that people are protected. Absolutely. I'm going to shift a little bit um, because you talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, which I think we, if you're a woman, you probably have uh, felt at some point in time. And uh, again, I'm going to quote you because I thought, think you say it better than, than I can. You talked about being in constant need to be better than the next, whatever it might be. I didn't realize I had turned into my own malignant competitor. Boy, did I resonate with that. And then you say to everyone, you do you. Stop looking around, only look forward and toward the path you want to go on. Because if you keep looking to the side, you're going to run into a tree that cost a huge, that cast a huge shadow on your life. I loved that. So, um, it kind of gives you permission, right? To just keep moving. But uh, I think we do look around and say, boy, everybody seems to have their stuff together and, uh, you know, they're going to find out that I don't. Well, and all of us don't really, when it comes down to it, all of us really don't. I mean, I talked to one of my best friends who was crying in her car for 10 minutes this morning. And like, if you knew her, you'd be like, she is like the most amazing, beautiful, just wonderful human. And she is, she's all those things. But she also was crying in her car to me for 10 minutes, right? And we all have those moments. I mean, I probably cried in my car to her like a month ago, right? So like, it it happens. And so I think... By me looking at someone else, you don't know what the story is. You don't know what's going on in their life. It's very easy for me to be like, oh my gosh, look at how amazing they are. And they got this great marriage and they're just like holding it together. Meanwhile, I'm here, you know, with my kid whose hair isn't brushed because I just ran out of the house because we were going to be late to whatever event we were doing. And we had a fight about if she was going to wear the shoes that she wanted to wear or not, you know? So it's very easy for me to look at that and be like, 
oh my gosh, well, they really, they have their stuff together. Meanwhile, my kid is screaming because we forgot her water bottle. Like, you know, so I think we just need to really focus on our own path. And if, if we do that, we're going to be successful in whatever we do, because we're, we're our, our challenger then like, we are only trying to be better than what we can be, you know? So we're trying to be our, our hero, our own hero. Right. And it was interesting because Matthew McConaughey had this talk at one point and it really resonated with me. He was, I think he was on an award show and they asked him, you know, who his hero was or who was his hero in five years or whatever. And he's like, well, it's me in 10 years then. And um, I think that we keep looking for someone else to be our hero when really we should be our own hero. Absolutely. And, and just trust ourselves that we are going to grow and develop. And yeah, develop eventually. We need to yeah. Be. Yeah. I'm still waiting for me, but that's okay. I know. I mean, it's one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, to shift, but you were so um, raw and open about your sexual assault. Yeah. And I think that's so important because there are so many women who have experienced some kind of an assault, you know, um, yours was really obviously uh, very scary and, and very violent, and you came through, right? But yeah. I'm sure it took a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what you want readers to understand about it? Totally. I mean, I think it's interesting because, again, in 2021, we would ex- expect that, again, some empathy for people who've had sexual assault, but you still hear the what were you wearing? Where did you go? What did you do? Da, 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 right. And I even hear that about 13 year olds or 12 year olds and they have no idea. And in my situation as an adult human, looking back on it, I can be like, okay, what was I thinking? Like you're alone with an individual you don't really know very well, but really that's dating, right? I mean, so when you really put it in context of, okay, so should you not date people that you don't really know? I mean, it's, it's wild because even I, as an adult human can figure out a way to blame myself or putting myself in that situation. So it's interesting, kind of the internalized, I guess we'll say misogyny, right? Because there's no way at 38 years old, I should be blaming myself for my teenage self's decisions, you know? Um, And let me just also say that your teenage self's decision wasn't necessarily a bad one because right, you had totally. come in just assuming that someone is going to be totally who totally. they should be and exactly and right. not assault you. I yeah. think that that's you know. I mean, there's that too. I mean, to it to expect. There's that too. But then, like, how do you protect your kids from that sort of thing oh. too? Because they're like, okay, just don't be alone with people. I mean, oh, I mean, I give my kids the list. I have two da- daughters in their twenties, and I have given them the list. Yep. But, you know, and I, I don't want to go on a um, bully pulpit, but I never thought when I t- sent them to college, mm. not only would I have to talk to them about not drinking and not get, being vulnerable and all of this stuff, but also if they go into the doctor's office and it doesn't feel right, then they need to get the heck out of there. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's... I um, mean, it's, there's it's a, hard. There's a like, how do, you, how do you protect your kids from any of it? I mean, even just like neighborhood kids, right? It's just it's almost endless. And then you realize, okay, well, I'm going to become really not in a good mental health status myself if I'm worried about all these things. But I really wanted to talk about my experience because so many people just kind of suck it down and blame themselves and don't talk about it. Right. And in my situation, uh, my 
biological mother happened to be in politics at the time. And so, of course, she was the one person who knew what had happened. And so what was the decision? The decision was suck it down. Don't bring it forward because it's going to reflect poorly on her for her political campaigns. And so nothing, you know, came about. We didn't press charges, nothing, because the concern was people were going to be like, okay, well, what kind of person are you letting your teenage daughter X, Y, Z, or how is this going to reflect on her? How is this going to play out? Right. And so that is also an interesting dynamic that I just think that a lot of people feel like they don't have a safe place to go to for, for these sorts of things. And so making sure people know that, yes, there are random people that will care about them and care about their story and can help them get whatever resources they need as well. Right. But, and what did that do to you in terms of when you were in that situation? And I remember, again, you talk about coming home and didn't even say anything and no. that your sister obviously was supportive of you, but, um, and as we, I can only, you know, um, assume that that has had repercussions, you know, all through your life because yeah, it was I, a trauma. I think um, the biggest thing with it is then you feel not believed, right, at baseline. So if you have adults in your life that minimize whatever trauma or whatever, I mean, it's gaslighting, right? We all know what gaslighting is and you're trying to minimize whatever someone's experience is. If you have people in your life that are gaslighting you, you don't even know what's important or what's not important. And that's your baseline. That's like your home base to create the direction of your, your life. Sure. And so then you think, okay, well, what worth do I have as a human? Right. And so I grew up in a culture where, you know, sex was just this evil thing to talk about, right? Like we couldn't even talk about it, say it word that was evil. Right. And so then you think, you know, we got that and then we got, you know, be a virgin until you're married. So then that messaging kind of ingrains in your mind that, oh man, like maybe I am not worth anything except for, you know, to be this virginal whatever. And so then you kind of feel like damaged goods then if you've had a sexual assault. And what helped you? What helped you get through it? Um, Time. (laughs) That's fair. Um, And honestly, um, I think being able to talk about it with people who've had similar experiences Mm -hmm. for me was kind of like, oh, I'm not alone in this situation because for some people that's not good, right? Some people it re-traumatizes them and it sets them back in their healing. Some people need to do specialized trauma therapy, as you know, for me, I'm a talker, obviously, or I wouldn't have written a book, but, you know, speaking about it and then using my experience to potentially help someone else, that was, that transition was the point that I was able to heal from it. So it's like, if something bad happened to me, but I can prevent that from happening to somebody else, that's where I was okay. That's where I could be fine with whatever happened. And I loved it when your daughter asked, does your book have a happy ending? <laughs> so what would your answer be? Or what was your answer? Well, I mean, of course, because I had these two beautiful children. But, you know, really the biggest thing is we're the writers of our own story and we're our own main characters. And we need to go in whatever direction we feel passionate about. And I think it's really important for us to to work on our purpose and to lead these lives that are going to impact other people in a positive way. Absolutely. 
And, um, and, you know, I asked you if there was one thing that people can do, take away from this, you know, what would it, because again, I'm going to quote you, hope without action is worthless. So what kinds of action would you suggest our listeners uh, take on? You know, I think it's really important for people to be aware of what's going on in their communities. I really think voting is, is a something that we take for granted. And I think we should never take that for granted. Uh, I think that our rights and women's rights and healthcare and everything else is on the ballot every time we have an election. And so make sure to not only vote, but know who's running for your state and federal legislatures, because that's really critically important and really making sure that you are present in your life. Even if you can just say, you know, I'm going to be present in my life for this hour and I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode and I'm going to just sit here with my kids. and I'm not going to be returning these emails. I'm not going to be on, you know, TikTok, which yes, it's addicting. And yes, I'm on TikTok. And so I'm just using that as an example <laughs> because I need to have a time limit on that for myself. Um, but like, we just need to be able to cut off the external stimulation and be able to focus on what we want and listen to ourselves because in the silence, we really can hear what we need. Oh, that is a great way to end. Dr. Kelly Lee Stecker, thank you so much for being with us today. And you, we can get your book on Amazon. Um, and it, the name of it is called Delivering. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. As you know, I try to provide a summary of takeaways with every episode. Dr. Stecker's reference to the quote, we keep looking for someone else to be our hero when really we should be our own hero, end quote, really stuck with me and seems to be the underlying theme of her book and her life and something we all can learn from. If you're a woman, you've probably been vulnerable at least once in your life, whether it's an abusive relationship, an untenable work environment, or even as a citizen trying to get health care. Help may not always be evident, but there are things you can do. First of all, find your support system, a friend, a family member, clergy. Reach out to organizations and hotlines like the Domestic Abuse Hotline or Suicide Prevention Hotline. The number for the Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233 or you can text START to 88788. The Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. We'll put these in our podcast notes as well. You can also find out if your workplace has an ombudsman program. And vote. As Dr. Stecker says, women's health is always on the ballot. Finally, take some time each day to practice self-care, even if it's just putting your phone on airplane mode for a few minutes. I hope you'll share with us what action you'll take to be your own hero. Let us know on our social media or at beyondthepapergown.com. As always, thanks for listening. After recording this interview, Dr. Stecker filed an action in Minneapolis against her employer, M Health Fairview, alleging she was fired after reporting a male colleague to the medical board for sexually assaulting a patient. In her action, she claimed sexual discrimination, defamation, and wrongful termination. M Health Fairview has not responded to the lawsuit as of the date of this recording. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. 
For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shumbayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.